Blog Talk Radio. Tonight, this is Betrayed by Hospice with Marcia Joyner, and our guest speaker is Stephen Garrett from Oregon, and he's going to tell us the story about his mom, who was Margaret Ann, Mary Ann Garrett. She was 90 years old, and he lost her in August of 2015. So, Stephen, um, I'd like to turn it over to you and let you tell us a few things about your mom and how she wound up being in hospice care. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate this chance to tell the story of my mom. As you said, my mom's name was Margaret Mary Ann Garrett, maiden name Pitts. She was born October 28, 1924. She made it 90 and three quarters years, died on August 31st, 2015 at 8.30 a.m. Well, in 2015, on April 12th, my mom suffered a few what we thought were minor strokes, and we took her to Kaiser Hospital, and she was there for a few days, and eventually my older sister showed up from New York, and it was decided that my mom should go to an assisted living place where they were going to do some therapy on her and and help her exercise, and kept telling her that she was going to go home if she exercised which she did. I've got this wonderful picture of her exercising. Um, This went on for a couple of months, but it was very expensive. The place was called Marquee, and it was $8,000 a month, and that was just chipping away at us. So we switched to Farmington. They were fairly close, both in Gresham, where my mom was born and went to high school, went to St. Henry's Church there, was baptized there, and eventually died in Gresham. She made a few tours around during World War II, which I'll tell you about. After about a few months of her being at the Farmington, which she didn't like at all, um, things started going awry. Um, My little sister, who had the, the durable power of attorney, had decided that she was going to bring hospice, Kaiser Hospice, onto the scene. I had spent a lot of time with my mom, sometimes 16, 17 hours at a time, and had wonderful conversations with her, with my mom. And people were trying to push on this theory that she had this dementia that was wrecking her, and I just didn't see it. 95% of the time she was clear as a bell, and every once in a while she'd get forgetful or, you know, get angry that they were locking her in this place and wouldn't give her the combination. So she was a fighter. Right. Um, during, during the, um, after the 4th of July, which we had a great time together and all our family were there, um, my little sister signed the paperwork for hospice unbeknownst to me. One of them, my older sister, younger sister, decided that they'd better tell me about it. So I got a, a, a text message via from Portland, all the way to New York and back to me in Portland saying that hospice was going to show up in 15 minutes. Oh man, I I was really mad about that because I didn't have any warning that this was going to happen. Absolutely. Well, Kaiser hospice, this group, I got all the business cards from these three nurses and the two doctors that signed off on the hospice. They're alleged to be continuous care. They even got that on their business card. And that's what they call themselves, continuous care. Well, my mom, from the time hospice got there on August 25th, 2015, was dead in six days. 
So that didn't seem like continuous care to me. No, it doesn't. Immediate, yeah, immediately Kaiser Hospice took over the medications from the assisted living facility. Um, I didn't think much of it because they were supposed to be the professionals. Everybody trusts hospice at that point. And they started giving her drugs. They gave her methadone, Seroquel, Oxycontin, Xanax, morphine, and Hydol. Now, that was seeming a little bit strange to me, seeming a little strange to me, because here you had a woman that had lived for 90 and a half years who drank Lipton's iced tea. And once in a while, on her birthday, I saw her have a beer with with some tomato juice in it, and we called it the poor man's Bloody Mary. Her dad had started that, and I still have one now and then. Mm -hmm. Anyway, back to some, before we get to that I'm going back to where my my mom had really been this courageous person that was very, very tough and strong-willed. At a couple of years old, she was diagnosed with polio. She literally came to the top of the stairs, and they were going, Margaret, come on downstairs, and she couldn't. She couldn't walk and fell down the stairs. They took her to Shriners Hospital in Portland, which had just opened up. It's now been open 94 years, 90 at the time my mom died. And she had to learn to walk again. And a couple of times in her life, as the braces were taken off and her legs gave out again, she had to learn. She told me pretty close to the end of her life that she had learned to uh, walk again four times, and I'd never known that. But my mom was just this tough character. Very strong she, lady. Uh, strong lady. She uh, mm-hmm. was a Ma, Ma Bell operator in San Diego during World War II. Um, when she met my father in 1944, she, uh, they moved into a house that my, my dad and his dad built on Mount Scott in southeast Portland, and she started taking in foster kids. Besides her own three kids, my older sister and my younger sister and me, she took in some older children, Rosemary, Hammer, and a little black guy named Jonathan, very cute kid, and a couple of foster uh, brothers. Then I asked for, a, said, I need a foster brother, and I got another foster sister, Pamela. So we ended up with a bunch of them, and then on top of all this, my mom was working for Catholic Services, and she took in 55 foster babies. I'm not kidding. From the time I was five years old until I was out of high school, 55. And they would be a few weeks old when Catholic Services would need someone to take care of them or they found a background family to match up and, and eventually adopt them up. Sometimes we had them for 13 months, and we'd have two or three at a time. And my mom was doing that for $1.25 a day. Well, a very compassionate like lady. Yeah, it sure wasn't for the money. Besides the 55 kids that she had that were foster babies, plus her own three kids and three or four foster kids, she had four um, foster kids in South America that she raised from childhood to through college. So this was one woman that was really trying to help out all the people. Um During World War II, she was a tool sharpener up at the Puget Sound. And uh, my dad had come in on the USS Saratoga, or one of the eight eight aircraft carriers he had been on. And he'd been in the service pre-World War II from 37 to 41. Then he got out and started pounding nails with his dad. It was a contractor, and they bombed Pearl Harbor. They put his suit back on and went back in again. Everybody was so proud of him. And... uh, one night, all the girls at the tool sharpening place in Bremerton decided to go to a dance. And they started to go down into the Kramer Hall, which was right there in, Herm- in uh, Bremerton, Washington. And above the entryway was this beautiful painting, oil painting, of a destroyer with palm trees and a couple walking on the beach. And my mom says, I'm going to meet that artist. Not only did she meet him, she married him. Amazing. Um, December 17, 1944, in Yuma, Arizona. Well, they moved into the house that my dad and his dad had built and raised these three kids and had all the other ones and was doing pretty good up until April 12th when she had these strokes. Now, she had lived by herself after your dad passed in 1998. She lived alone taking care of herself, feeding herself, cooking for herself, running her errands. And so we're talking about a woman who was very active at 90, right? 
Right, and she was a pillar okay. of the community. I, I thought, you know, anybody that has that many kids and could deal with them, I mean, just me would have been enough. But she had all these Absolutely. other kids. So what, did anyway. she, what was the thing that she said to you when she was in Farmington? When well, like I said, I, 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 didn't, I wasn't working right then, so I would go there and I would sit with her from 7 in the morning all through the day through all the meals until 3 o'clock in the morning. And one time she was sitting with me, and she said, uh, she said, I'm in trouble, aren't I? And I said, yeah, you're, you're in big trouble. I said, the dumbest thing you ever did was give durable a power of attorney to my younger sister, Lori. And she said, can I change that? And at that time, I didn't know that you can, but you can change that durable power attorney. You also need to protect it because somebody else, another sibling that's rivalry with you, can change that with an attorney and supersede your power of attorney. So you've got to watch out for that. I've been hearing about that. And the problem with my little sister having a durable power of attorney is that mm-hmm. I believe my, my little sister, um, she sided with my older sister who works still for Planned Parenthood, and it's okay to abort kids. And yeah. they had abortions. And, and here my mom, who believed in the sanctity of life and was Christian-based all of her life, all of a sudden, she's at the mercy of people that are going to euthanize her if her life doesn't seem like it's going to be as good as it used to be. And they're not telling me anything. I just didn't know what was going on. And I, I will be ashamed the rest of my life that I didn't figure this out sooner than the five days, six days that I had to figure it out. But you're in so shock at that point. I was in shock. Um, I have two photographs that just stand out in my mind. And one of them was my mom vomiting in the garbage can, which was the last picture I took. And then the next picture was the last picture my little sister took the day before she died. When a person's in an assisted living place, they get a call button on them. So if they've got to go pee or they need some help, they can hit that call button. Well, I'm not sure what was going on, but my little sister uh, took the picture of my mother, and her mouth is open because they'd given her all so she could probably hear and think but couldn't speak anymore. She was de- dehydrated. They'd given her all this ham sandwich of drugs and really were just taking her out. And I'm not sure what was going on in my sister's mind because she won't tell me, but instead of leaving the call button on, she took a picture of her with it on, pushing the button, and then took the call button off. Well, my, my wife had just come back from Japan. The next day I got there, and when I got there, my sister and her Husband were already there, and they turned away the ambulance from Kaiser Sunnyside. And I and was upset. who called upset. the ambulance? I think the assisted living place, Farmington, had called that when they realized my mom was in trouble because she was starting to fail because of all the drugs they'd given her, and, and she wasn't okay. doing so well. Well, because my mother had signed a DNR, a do not resuscitate, in her advanced directive, another horror story I'll get to, uh, she didn't have a prayer, so my little sister turned it down. They, the, the ambulance went away. My sister and her husband went off to breakfast. My wife wow. and I showed up. I just got my wife from uh, from uh, Japan. She had just returned from seeing her folks in Japan. And uh, there I was sitting with them. And just before my sister and her husband left, or, or maybe they had come back, my mom, her breath was really, really shallow. And... At 8.30, she just wasn't breathing. And I just jumped over there quickly and realized my mom was dead. So we freaked out. We called everybody that we could. Uh, Everybody seemed to be expecting it. And pretty soon, Lori and Jerry, my sister, decided they were going to go. So I sat there with my wife just absolutely flipping mortified that my mom just quit dying. They, Your they sister left. and her husband left a second time? They left. And I don't okay. know why. I don't know what. I, I was in such shock that, you know, they just weren't in the room. So for the next five hours, I sat there with my mother's dead body. I'm crying. Just, I couldn't quit crying. My, my wife is crying. And then I remembered that up on the wall, I had brought her father's um, crucifix, you know, that opened up and it had the the holy water in it and the candles. And so quickly I set it up and I had my wife take a picture of me when I put the candles on it and lit them. And I'm trying to figure out how 
trying to remember how someone delivers the last rites to someone. You know, where's the priest? Where's the hospice people? Where's the staff from the assisted living? Nobody's there. So I go into the bathroom because, of course, the little vial with the holy water is empty. So I put tap water in it, bring it back out, try to anoint my mother, try to say the words that I remembered from years of being a Catholic, where I was a Catholic for eight years when I was a kid, lit the candles. I was just just out of it. My mom with her eyes open and her mouth hanging open. It was, it was just something that a lot, my sisters had never looked at it. Many people could not look at it, but I had my wife take the picture of it because I was starting to get angry. Five right. hours later, five hours later, Bates Funeral Home show up. A couple people come in, throw my mother on there like she's a couple hundred pound bags of potatoes, cover her up, say virtually nothing to me, something to the, the facility at the assisted living place, and out my mom's body goes. Well, I, I, I let that sink in for a couple hours, and then, man, I started getting mad. I first went to the police department in Gresham and said, I want to file for a wrongful death. Something wasn't right. I tried to talk to as many of the people at the Farmington as I could. <sighs> Just take a breath. It's okay. Okay. So I went to the police department, and the, the guy who was listening to my story brought out some sergeant who kind of just shined me on, and they had heard the word hospice, so he didn't think that I had a, 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 any case. Then I was getting really mad because I, I said to him, you know what, that's not right. I said, I'm the last John Wayne in this town, and I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I, th- I saw him flinch when I said that, like I was thinking, oh, God, I'm going to have to arrest this guy. Well, then the next morning, I called up the Multnomah County Coroner's Office to report the same wrongful death. And I was telling him the story of what happened, and then right in mid-sentence, he stops me. And he says, oh, we don't even record hospice cases in the state of Oregon. Okay, now I went from mad to angry. Mm-hmm. And I said, you mean, I said, you mean my mother lived 90 and three-quarters years, had all these kids, lived with a husband who was a lifer, did 20 years in the United States Navy, United States Coast Guard, got his 20 out of there. He was won two battle stars for the invasion of Okinawa. On Iwo Jima, he was on two, air, eight aircraft carriers. He, he retired out of the post office, too, all these government jobs. My mom was a pillar of the community, and she was great and an outstanding person right up until August 25th when Hos- Kaiser Hospice shows up, and now she's a non-entity? And you go, yeah. And I said, buddy, I'm going to find that law, and I'm going to change that law. Then I'm going to bring it down there and shove it down your throat. So then I realized, hey, I was getting too mad, and I was going to go to jail. Because I, you know, I was so glad that my mom raised me Christian, because I had the three business cards of the death angels. That's what the, the good hospice workers call the ones that right. are not good hospice workers. Believe me, I talked to a lot of them. I met a woman that I know I'm going to get wander here for a second, but I met a woman. This is really important. That was homeless, and she came by my house because I live on a bike path where thousands of people were coming by. We had 500 camps out here, and she said to me point blank, "I used to work for hospice until I found out what they were doing, and I would never go back. I would rather be homeless." I never forgot she said that. And some people feel that way. Um, those that value the sanctity of life. Unfortunately, okay, so now I went to the, the majority don't. So now I was really mad. So now I called up. I was looking for attorneys. So I called up the watchdog attorneys, and I said, well, what part of the medical industry is doing this? And he laughed at me, and he said, all of them. And I went, what? He said, all of them. And I said, you better explain that one. And he gave me these three graphs, and he said, you know how the price of oil has fluctuated up and down? Cause and demand. Same with gold. Stayed at seventy-three dollars for fifty years, then went up to sixteen hundred, and then down to twelve, and it goes up and down, fluctuates. But hospice has never fluctuated. Started in the seventies. This woman in England named Lyons did this great thing, sanctity of life, Christian-based nonprofit, end-of-life care that was needed, and that graph has gone straight up from nineteen seventy-three or four. 
and it climbs and climbs and climbs because the hospices are no longer nonprofit. They are for profit. Absolutely. And they're not think to be they're, they're, they've morphed out of the Hemlock Society from the 1930s, where they've trained four generations of doctors and nurses to think that assisted suicide and euthanasia is the norm. And they've convinced them. And, and now we, we've gone to where used to be horrible that an abortion was going to happen. And now, you, right up to the day the baby's born, you can abort the baby. Give me a break. And so I'm talking to this guy, and he goes, you see that graft? That graph just keeps climbing and climbing and climbing, and there's no end in sight. And I go, why? He says, because there's 77 million baby boomers. And everybody, the doctors, the nurses, the ambulances drivers, the janitors, everybody wants a piece of that cash cow. Just in 2015, hospice made $20 billion. Not million, billion. And Kaiser Hospice isn't even the worst. There's one called Sun Hospice in Florida, and that CEO says we must dominate this industry. And she writes herself a check for six figures every year. And they're getting more competitive and more competitive all the time. Right. And they are searching for people that they can bring in and cross them over. And in some cases, they do it very quickly. In your mom's case, that was very soon. I mean, for her them to come in on the 25th and give her enough drugs by the 31st. But That ham sandwich, the litany of drugs that they pumped into my mother that just took her out. And then I love the hide-all. At the end of the, the hide-all, when she's fighting for her life, hitting the call button, she can't even speak with her mouth well, open. She's still thinking, and they're taking her out. But she couldn't even hit the call button if it wasn't in her hand. It was in her hand. That's the last picture my sister took. No, 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 but I'm, say, call- but I'm saying when your sister took the call button – out of her hand and left, your mom couldn't call anybody. Oh, no. It was all over. See, that makes me really, right. really worried. And I can't get any facts about it because I flipped out. Uh, excuse my sisters of killing my mother. And they told me if I ever said it again, they'd never talk to me again. So to know them, i got to just let it go. Hopefully they'll come forward. they got a guilty conscience. I don't know. Maybe hospice pulled the wool over their eyes too. I don't know because we don't talk. But but finally, what, what, what back to the uh, – the watchdog attorneys, this guy finally said that the, the, the crux of the matter was the, uh, the new cash cow. Everybody wants this because 77 million baby boomers have got all this money. And he goes, it doesn't matter if it's the Obama administration or the Bush administration or the Trump administration. They all want a piece of that cash cow. That just Sick. blows my mind. makes me so mad. Sick. Okay, so then, then what did I do? <clears throat> What did you do then? Well, then I went back to the attorneys. I called a couple of them, and there was never any money involved. I'm just a poor hippie carpenter. They're not going to help me out. I got to Margaret Dore. I was thinking, well, she sounded like she might be an advocate. I, I talked to her on the phone. I know she's up in Seattle. I got the name right this time, Dorr, D-O-R-R. And then I wrote her a handwritten letter, and because I don't, my typewriter wasn't working, I didn't have any way to do it without paying a million dollars at FedEx, you know, 25 cents a minute for typing stuff out. I, I gave a, I gave her a handwritten capital block letters, very nicely done, sent it to her, nothing. Never heard a word from her. That just took me down. I tried one more time as we started dealing with my mom's estate, my, my sister now going from durable power of attorney to executor of the will. Uh, I asked for some of that money because my mother had left it, whatever she had to the three of us kids. And so I went in an autopsy done before I couldn't get an autopsy done for my mother. So I went to the funeral home, talked to them. They set me up with a guy named Dr. Carl Wingren, W-I-G-R-E, forensic, forensic uh, pathologist. He, cut, he charged me $5,000 for the autopsy. Now, to keep jurisdiction, since he was in Seattle, he had to drive all the way down to Vancouver, Washington, which is across the river, the Columbia River from Portland, and the funeral home took my mother's body and packed her up and drove her over to Vancouver so he was legally able to do the autopsy. He worked on my mom for three hours. The same night, he calls me up. He calls me up on the phone, and what he said to me blew my mind. This is exactly what he said. He said, when a family calls me up and wants to do an autopsy, 
because they think they have a wrongful death. They're usually right. Then he added, I wished I had her veins. The scar tissue from her mild strokes had formed and she was recovering. And then he killed me with this sentence. He goes, your mom could have reasonably expected to live another eight to ten years. My God. You know, when my dad died yeah. in 1998, they, they, put, they put the wrong date on his, uh, on his gravestone. They missed it by a day. They, and I would have loved to have had that one extra day. Imagine eight to ten years with my mother. Exactly. Where, she, where, she's kick, where she's kicking my butt playing Magooglis, which was a card game we played with three quarters. I mean, I'm, I'm, she's supposed to have va- vascular dementia. That's what, they, that's what hospice put on her death certificate. But she's in the assisted living place just really kicking my butt again and again and taking my three quarters every time I played Magooglis with her. And that woman was smart. <laughs> And sharp, and she wanted to live. Don't ever give right. me this crap that my mom wanted to die. I don't buy it. Okay, so now I still wasn't giving up yet. I, I, I got together with stealth euthanasia uh, author Ron Panzer. I called him and talked to him on the phone. I ran into this wonderful person named Vicki Traps who turned me on to him, and stealth euthanasia was great. I read that thing from stem to stern. I love an outline form, like I'm reading my eight pages here. And he outlined exactly what was going on. The three hospice giants, how they started, went from nonprofit to profit, how it's become this corporate giant that's a, a megalith that's destroying lives. And, and you know, you, you, and, and Vicki Travis, I owe her a lot. She was a great deal of help to me and a source of comfort. I love this woman. And she told right. me what, what, what I hadn't ever even guessed at. She wrote, she wrote a bunch of articles called the Kaiser, Hot, the Kaiser Papers. And she told me that not only did the doctor kill her father, but he bragged about it. So her and I were just in the thick of it here, and we tried once to do the same thing and record the story of my mother. Well, due to equipment failure, it didn't go. So here's the second attempt. But I am forever grateful to Vicki Travis for, for helping me. Absolutely. Okay. But I, I, you know, I, I can only fight these wars of attrition for so long. And Vicky warned me. She said, "These people that have billions and billions of dollars, you know, they they followed her around. They sit across the street from her house. You know, I got eleven cents that I can rub together, and I'm living on a hope and a prayer. And these guys have billions of dollars. How can I beat them in court? So I, I really was just getting discouraged and, and worse and worse. You know. And then after Margaret Dorr didn't even reply to my handwritten letter, I fell into a three-year deep depression with all this. Yeah, it I haven't happens. Even been able to, I haven't even been able to get out of bed for weeks at a time. It just crushed me. But I never quit praying. Somebody asked me one day, when do you pray, Stephen? I said, I don't think I ever quit praying. And some, something has awoken within me again and reproved me to try again to tell the story of our mother who wanted to live, and she told me so. And it was taken she, away from her. Yeah. She spent the last few days of her life vomiting in a garbage can. Does that sound like death with dignity to you? No, it doesn't. It isn't. I say to, anyone, I say to anyone willing to listen to this, don't let that happen to you or anybody that you love. Allow only your most trusted relative or friend to have the full, durable power of attorney. Adhere to the four no's. No, never sign a DNR unless you really want to die. No senior advantage plan, because once they've got you signing on the dotted line, all these other things are contingencies that you're not hearing about. I never knew that hospice was going to come over and take over the meds. For four mm-hmm. months, uh, Farmington knew the meds that my mother needed, that the doctors were providing, and all of a sudden they're giving her this litany of the ham sandwich, just enough to take her out of the thing in five days. I think they were racing to do that. Couldn't wait to get their three or four hundred dollar kickback from Medicare. Oh, they love it. Just move the bodies out, bring another one in. Right. The third of the it's four no's. No. Yep. The 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 fourth of the no the the four no's. No hospice unless they prove sanctity of life to you. 
no advanced directive. There's another one of those catch-alls that trap you into their system that you can't get out. Make sure that you put this in writing in a last will and testament. Have it checked. I'm, I'm going to have mine tattooed on my skin. Let them, let them <laughs> look at my back where this last will and testament is that says no hospice. There was a lady who did that recently. Um, I had seen a post, and, you know, she clearly has it tattooed, I want to live, no hospice. And Believe me, all my life she, I've had this she knows drummed that, in that. Right, and that's, you know, what, that's why we're doing these shows is to let everybody know the dangers of it. I mean, there are reasons for hospice, and originally hospice was compassionate. They did honor the sanctity of life, and for someone who is in a great deal of pain, is in, you know, the very end stages of cancer and is in pain and it says, I want you to get rid of this pain, and you tell them this is what that drug is going to do, then it's consensual, and they make that decision. There is a place for them, but not the way that it is now. And that's why I um, said that. If, if they believe, if, if they show you that they're, you know, sanctity of life, that they're really going to care about you and, and, and help you die naturally, then that's one thing. But believe me, that's not the case in a lot of these. You know, there, no. was, a, there was a great song by Leonard Skinner off of the Street Survivors. And he's singing, they'll never get me in an old folks' home. You got that right? You got that right. They'll right. never get me in Because he knew, there. yeah. yeah. The, yeah. And that was back in the, in the 70s, and you're like, how did he know that? Um, yeah. One of the things that you and I had talked about earlier with the autopsy that you had brought up is what he told you about um, her injury to her head. Yeah, I've got it in my hand. The very first page of the pathological findings is uh, item two is that it says a blunt force injury to the head. A subscapular right. hemorrhage of the left mom died. I'd heard something about my mom falling. I don't know what was going on. I, 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 I just I cringe at some of the things I heard from those people. Like one of the people that worked there warned me. He said, he called me up on the phone. He said, I just stopped them from giving her any more methadone. And uh, she's, she's starving. She, she needs some food. And, and I brought some food uh, to her. And she was in a coma and couldn't eat it. And I had a couple other people warn me. They, they didn't like what was going on there. And my mom, you know, she was very, very much overweight. So it was hard for these people, I admit, for them to get her up, get her in a wheelchair, get her to the bathroom, get her out of there. And then 10 minutes later, she wants to go to the bathroom again. So they were getting frustrated. My mom, uh, triple Scorpio that she was, had a temper. And one time she said to me, she said, I got there, and she said, I just fired everybody here. I, I love that. I, I mean, she was feisty <laughs> right to the end. Uh-huh. But, right. you know, something happened when she fell and hit her head. And uh, Well, and you I've also came in when they were yelling at her at one point. Yeah, I didn't like that. You know, I, I, I figured that nobody had a right to yell at my mother no matter what. You know, $5,000 a month, is that not enough? $8,000 for the other place? Give me a break. Hire people that are compassionate or don't get them near our loved ones. Exactly. Now, I've got the toxicology report here on the same first page. And they're, they're saying that my mother in her system, this is, this is um, Dr. Carl Weigren, forensic autopsy report for Margaret Mary Garrett, saying in her system, for every milliliter of blood she had, she had 91.1 nanograms of methadone in it. My God. She had 47.2 nanograms per milliliter of morphine. I mean, this is, this is a lot. It seems like a little to somebody, but somebody who's addicted to heroin, who's trying to come down on this much, with this much methadone, maybe. But not my mom who'd lived on Lipton's iced tea and a Bloody Mary once a year. Right. Well, and it that was, wasn't it was, what the cause of out. death was. I mean, it, the cause of death Kaiser was Hospice. she was overdosed. Yeah, but Kaiser Hospice you know, running the show there, running the meds, saying what was going on, they put vascular dementia. Oh, right. horse patuki, you know. I, I know people that I've known for 10 years that had dementia, and they were way worse than my mom, who was just starting to show signs of it. Most of the time, she was sharp as a tack. Once in a while, she'd, she'd be slipping, but no way was she going out. She, wa- well, she even wanted if to live. Some, and I'm, and I, I totally understand and agree with what you're saying, but even if someone has dementia... That is not a reason to 
murder them. That's not right. a reason to decide that their life is not worth living anymore. I know. And, so and when I you know. and you asked me earlier what I would say to everybody, and I, and what I really want to say is, you know, may, may your life be blessed by God's graces, and may your death be surrounded by loved ones and not hasten, hastened, and agonized. In, in agony, controlled by those who only see you as a commodity. You know, we've had we've had that happen before in history. You may not well, know absolutely. what this day is. Yeah, you may and not know what this day is. Go ahead. And for it to happen in the United States is baffling, and I believe that is why. And, and I don't know your, in, what's in your sister's heart. Um, maybe one of them, but maybe they didn't know. And the fact of the matter is most of us go into this trusting hospice because we've been taught that they're compassionate, they care, they're going to do this for you, they're going to take care of you. And and you were fed all of those lies, and they are taught to say the same things to us that they do to everybody. You know, we all have kind of the same stories that we heard from them, and they use the same drugs. And the drugs they're using were not... You know, it's not the anxiety. They say that they're giving her this to calm her down so she won't be anxious. Um, Those drugs are used for antipsychotic. They're used for patients that are bipolar or have schizophrenia. They're not to calm a patient down. And in actuality, they have the reverse effect. They can create agitation, irritation, rage, um, anxiety, You know, like you said with your mom, she was nauseous, she was throwing up, but here's a 90-year-old woman who's throwing up, and who in their right mind would think that that is a correct medication to give someone? And wouldn't you at that point stop it? I tried. I got in there and tried to get my sister to stop that. I, I did everything I could. To, to, well, I'm not talking about you personally stop it. I'm, I'm talking about the compassionate, supposedly, the nurses. Wouldn't you stop it if you had a patient that is throwing up like your mom was and that medication was affecting, that, affecting her that way, you would stop giving her that medication. I don't mean you as her son. I mean the nurses. But, yeah, well, that's, that's only if they're really doing what their Hippocratic oath says and they believe in the sanctity of life. If they have another agenda that's been hidden from all of us, then no, they're, they're just trying to move another patient down the road, and they're, they're bragging about it. Like the one I just heard about with the, with the abortions, the, the doctor said if the baby was still breathing, I'd, I'd get in there and break its neck. It's posted on my Facebook page, Stephen Douglas Patrick Garrett. You get on my Facebook page, and you'll see exactly where I'm coming from. And, you know, most people don't even know what today is. Today is March 6th. Well, 183 years ago, another bunch of people in Texas were fighting for their life against an atrocity. Remember the Alamo. That happened today, 180 years ago. And I say to people, yep, and and I watch it every year, exactly 180 years ago. And I've watched it every year that, that, you know, a lot of people have died for freedom. And now somebody needs to get together, not one of us, not 10 of us, but hundreds of thousands of us. If I had 100,000 of me, I would go to every single uh, assisted living facility with my lawyers and check out every single thing they were doing. Had I had more than 15 minutes notice that uh, Kaiser Hospice was going to show up, believe me, I would. I would have done something. And I'm just not too happy with Kaiser ever, and they keep sending me literature. All this literature they keep sending me, wild horses couldn't get me not only to never go into a hospice, which I'd been part of since 1953, the year after I was born, but they'll never get me there. I won't even talk to anybody that works at a hospice. I'm so angry at it. I had, a, I had a woman there that was a friend of mine at the time. She was a nurse, a, a trauma nurse for 30 years for Kaiser. And I asked her point blank, is, is Kaiser Hospital a hospice? Are they euthanizing people? And she, matter of fact, I kept working in garden. And said, of course. So believe me, it's known. They know. And they're not telling you. And they're making a killing. Killing your love. Literally. Yeah, so Literally. who's going to fight? Marsha Joyner, Vicki Travis, Ron Panzer. 
Steve Garrett, I'm going. I'm going to fight. I'm in there. Take me anywhere well, you want. I'll stand in front of any office. I fear nothing. There are a I lot of people that, they murdered that are. My mother. There are a lot of people that are fighting. Um, there's just the fact that we have this show with Marty Oakley um, being the sponsor on it. There are people that are fighting this, but we are the minority, and the majority haven't even heard about it. You know, we, you don't see on mainstream media about the um, doctor in Ohio that just recently killed all these people, and his attorney is coming up with some bogus claim that he did what was right for the patients and that he's not guilty. You kill 34 people with 2,000 micrograms of fentanyl, and you're not guilty? I mean, the woman dies immediately. Uh, in Novus in Texas, where they have, you know, the doctor that was saying, send me somebody, I need some more people in here, make them go bye-bye, and turning people on their left side and giving them medication, and the nurse says that when she comes in, she makes sure she gives them their medication, turns them on their left side, and she doesn't leave her shift before that person's dead. And they have these things in writing. They're text. They have them. And yet mainstream media is not talking about it. And That's people aren't aware con- of it. So we have they're to still, continue to tell our they're story. Still controlled. They're still controlled by big pharmaceutical all the powers that be, the people that want the new cash cow. Now, wait till enough people get mad. Martin Luther King was a minority when he first started. Mahatma Gandhi was a minority when he first started. Everybody starts somewhere, so let's start now. Let's get five or six hundred million people saying, no, you can't just shove a bunch of chemicals in us and hasten our life because you need to add $300, $400 to your bank account from Medicare that's going to pay you off to put somebody else in the bed. Ain't going to happen. We've got to fight, fight, fight. Well, and I think that's the grassroots movement is what we're trying to do and to get more people, you know, like yourself to you know, <laughs> tell their story, you know, to pass it to other people, get other people to listen to it so that they don't wind up in the same situations that we have, that you have, that thousands of other people have. There's, um, and I know you're on the Facebook group, but let me, you know, plug that in now. In case anybody's listening, there is a Facebook group called Murdered by Hospice, and there are a great number of people on there, and they tell their stories. Interestingly, we've had someone from another Facebook group called um, Oh Hell, I'm a Hospice Nurse, and they come in and they make comments. Well, several of us have gone and looked at their site, and there are a couple of them that appear to believe in the sanctity of life, and they talk about other hospice people that do overdose people and do the euthanasia. They're not for it. However, they have jokes on there that are very inflammatory to those of us who have lost a loved one to their euthanasia tactics, but they make fun of it. They have jokes, and they don't see how that is not disrespectful to the people that have died and you know we have some that come on our site and say that we're ignorant we don't know what we're talking about and we're trying to blame somebody for the loss of our loved one and we need to be educated well we need we need a larger audience if i could i'd have somebody like johnny carson back on the late night talk show and he lit me on there and i'd tell the story you can write to anybody. I mean, that's what several of us do. We, you know, just keep pounding the pavement and writing to different people and hoping somebody will decide they want to do the story. And, you know, a, an attorney, if the attorneys don't take the case because there's not enough money in it for them, which is what I was told, which is what many people have been told, then why don't they do a class action suit? I mean, an attorney or a group of attorneys could, you know, put an advertisement out there and they could get thousands of people that would come in, you know, like myself, yourself, hundreds, thousands of others who have the medical records that prove beyond any doubt that our loved ones were murdered. They did not give consent to the drugs and we were lied to about what was going to happen. So if it's a money what, what thing... If, 
it's going to take a really good attorney. We need a dream team, and we're going to go after him, after him just like the, nobody ever thought that anybody would go over after Monsanto about Roundup, and yet that guy won a lot who just found out he was dying and, and sued them and won. Now they've got to stop that, and they've got to go after there, after these people with the billions of dollars and get, get the ceiling lifted on the, the thing, get this class action suit going, where 100,000 people are all getting a million dollars apiece from whoever is running this show. Somebody is killing people and liking it, and we got to expose them. I agree. I 100% agree with you. Um, it's just finding that right group of people or that person, or, you know, and I know that it's been reported because you see articles. Every so often we'll see articles out, and Ron Panzer um, with hospicepatients.org has put out many articles that, you know, show you that we're moving that direction. The information's out there, but it, people don't know it. And I'd like to add that when I, when I get part of this class action suit, I will pr- particularly put in a clause as for my part, I don't want a single penny. Anything that's Absolutely. won from this lawsuit, I want it to go right back into defending elder rights, stopping right. anybody for, of abusing them, retraining hospice again so that they can go back to sanctity of life, end-of-life care that's needed, that's, that's really decent and natural. Right. And fit. Another, th- and another thing that I, I – know, let me tell you this. Another thing that I really think that is important is I kept thinking about that. You know, here I scrounged all my life for a nickel here and nickel there, and here my family was dropping $8,000 a month for my mom to be in this living living place. And I'm thinking, God, isn't there somebody out there who's a licensed nurse who's uh, retired that would come and help my mom or your mom or somebody else's mom or dad for $2,200 a month? You know, one quarter of that amount so they had in-house care during these crucial times. My mom really wanted to go back. She thought if she exercised, she'd go back to her apartment, and no one was going to let her do that. But I want to see but, more in-house care and that whole field blooming and, and everything protected and everything protected with attorneys and legislation, and I want to see uh, bipartisan Democrats, independents, uh, libertarians, Republicans, everybody going on board because they don't want to be euthanized either. Exactly. Because exactly. everybody's going to get old unless they end your life before you get there. And what is the new old? I mean, what is considered old? Your mom was 90, but I don't think many of us today will see 90 because I believe that they will try to get rid of the baby boomers before we start costing money for Medicare and Medicaid. I believe it. In fact, I thought even the worst. I even heard worse things than that. I heard that in Toronto they're trying to be able to euthanize children if a kid gets hurt without the parents' consent. Give yes. me a break. It's just, yes. it's just getting ri- ridiculous. And so, well, and so they're, we, they're we, try- we they needed- let people, the people that if they're depressed, you can come in and decide that you want to die because you're depressed. You know, how yeah, about I, counseling? Yeah, I was depressed for three years. I was depressed about three years for my, my mom being murdered like this. I think I should have been euthanized and put out of my misery. You know, well, that's that same kind of mentality. That's the same mentality. And I think, you know, many people have said that what, and Vicki Travis has, you know, said this when I've talked to her, that Love her. many other people in this particular situation and watching your parent be murdered right in front of you and being powerless to stop it, then once you get the medical records, any doubt you ever had about the possibility that you're, loved one was murdered you don't you absolutely know that it happened you saw it it's an image you never get out of your head out of your dreams your nightmares it you have ptsd and that's not recognized and goodness sakes i would never go to a a counselor or somebody and tell him that i'm depressed because you're going to be next on the list right that you need to be given ativan and and all kinds of stuff right and we need to teach classes and have 10,000 offices that are all teaching classes to be aware of hospice before you ever even talk to these people. Right. 
absolutely. Um, it makes me, if you could put notices into assisted living and nursing homes that, you know, beware of hospice and these are the things that can happen, these are the red flags to look for, but they would never let you do that. Well, that's the can problem you imagine? Because, it, right. because five people walking out there or coming in there would just get kicked out. But I'm talking about a major movement. I'm talking about 50,000 people surrounding the place and say no. You know, I, I knew this one woman that was 102 years old that was also at the assisted living place. One of the greatest days that we had was when they, when the assisted living place, Farmington, decided to take all these people to the zoo. So my sister and I went, and we loaded them all up in wheelchairs and a bus, and we went to the zoo, and we had a blast. And, you know, there was quite a people, bunch of people involved in that. Now, what if that same bunch of people was all warning people about hospice? And maybe you can't step on the property. So you go to the next thing. You put it out there in literature. You put it in mailings. You, you, what, what I learned when I was taking classes on being a legal assistant is that no matter what anybody invents, you can invent another way to amend or you know, take that out and change it. No, no law can be made that can't be modified, adjusted, adjudicated. There's a, there's a way around it. So whatever they've got going against you, we can turn around and get against them and get it going. And then I have to I have to face the reality. Most Scorpios are murdered. My mother was murdered. I'm a Scorpio. I don't care. I, I, have, I really didn't enjoy the last three years of my life since they murdered my mother. So let me make some noise out there and see how long I make it. <laughs> well, I would hate to think that ha- that would happen to you. Oh, because, you know, I, I, it worried me when Vicki Travis said they were sitting outside of her house watching her. And then she said, nope, they never came up and approached her because they can't legally do that. They're chickens. But, they're, but they're, you know, for billions and billions of dollars, there's always somebody that's going to do uh, the dirty work. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm, for, I'm for exposing them for as long as I can make it. Put me on there as your uh, poster boy. I got lots of pictures of my mother you haven't seen. <laughs> Well, I, I have lots of pictures of my mother, too, but I don't think um, she would want them to be seen. I, you know, they, well, I, I'm not going to show the yeah. one of me doing the last rites for my mom. That was just a little bit heavy. But there's a lot of other beautiful pictures of her. Well, true, and, that, and that's the point that in the beginning of your you know, t- talk, is we talked about the fact that your mother was a very vibrant, energetic woman who kicked her butt in cards all the time, and she raised children. She didn't deserve to go out like this. And, you know, her three biological children, you know, all three should have been protecting her instead of one. And that way I've got to come to my defense of my sisters. Remember, if four generations of doctors and nurses can be brainwashed that assisted suicide is okay, morphing from the Hemlock Society in the 1930s that just keeps changing its name, then my sisters also got brainwashed to think that it's okay to let people go when their quality of life has slipped away. Or that so they were I'm, doing I'm, her a favor. I, you know, I mean, it's it, possible. It, it, right. And so, and so I've got it. You know, I, we all loved my mom a lot. And my mom was just so cool, you know. That that church just filled up uh, at her memorial. People loved my mom a lot. Mm-hmm. I wish I had that many friends, you know. She, she'd have hundreds of Christmas cards all over the place and all the people that she wrote and took care of. And uh, I should be so lucky, you know. Well, she made an impact so, on many people's lives. And she did. That's what, you know, that's what we look at our parents, and they, they did. Make an impact. I've got, and, and I've, I've got a cute story for you. If you can let me tell it, it's about my mom. You'll just love it. So my mom passes away, and we're trying to deal with her stuff and get to her phone number. And, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to hang on to the phone number because it's so strange. It's 503-666-6670. And my mom had that phone number for 43 years, and she said she was strong enough Christian to have a phone number like that. Five, yeah, six, have and all seven those yeah. yeah, and I'm thinking, well, I hope that I am. So I still have it on my other cell phone, and I turn it on once in a while to see if anybody's going to call. Because one of my foster sisters, Pam, one of the ones my mom adopted when she was eight years old, she's still alive, living in 
living in the Dallas, Oregon, not Dallas, Texas, but Dallas, Oregon. And she calls me up on that phone, and she didn't even know my mom was dead. She cried and cried, and I went out and saw her. I hadn't seen her for years, met her sons, met her grandkids. Great. It was just wonderful. But the best one of all was one day the phone rang. It was the 666-6670 number, and I picked it up, and this little lady's voice goes, Hello, is Margaret Garrett there? And I said, This is her son. I'm sorry to tell you that my mother passed away a few months ago. And she said, I thought something was wrong. My mail was being returned to me. And she said, I want to tell you something. During World War II, your mother and I were bell, Ma Bell operators in San Diego, and your mother introduced me to my future husband. Oh. Well, that made it oh, all worth sweet. it. Yeah. And I still got yeah. that phone Did number. You kept and that and number? Who, who knows what? Yeah, who, I can't get rid of it. I'm not going to get rid of it. First of all, it's easy to remember. Judge Judy said, always tell the truth. It's easy to remember. Same with that phone number. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, my parents well, had you, a very unusual number that ended in 8888. So 8's always been my favorite number. So, I want to th- um, thank, I, I thank you really quick because okay. I don't think that people who are dealing with just the fact that a loved one is murdered by hospice are taken into the real ramifications of what happens to the other people like me, like my sisters, like other people who love my mom. I, I went from just total devastation to where this needed to be said after three and a half years. And you're giving me a chance to say that has released this unbelievable burden of guilt and shame on me that I had done nothing. Well, now I have done something, and you did it for me. So thank you and Vicki Travis and Ron Panzer and this wonderful new person I'd like to meet named Marty Oakley. Mar- Mar- Marty Oakley. I kept remembering her name by re- thinking of Annie Oakley. <laughs> yeah, that's what everybody that's does. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. You you are you are very welcome, and I'm glad that we were able to give you a forum to tell your beautiful mother's story. And I, I hope we can together work and that we can make a change. And we'll stop sign it. me up. We'll sign me up. I'll, I'll lecture so, anywhere on this planet that you want me to okay. tell this story to. Okay, uh, Marty. And if you, and if you send I me forgot, back, if you send me back to, to call you, I'm sorry, I'll become an attorney. It, do we I have made a good attorney. Call them? No, we oh, yeah, have a whole call board people listening, but uh, okay. nobody okay. has flagged to talk. This has been a, an extremely uh, emotional hour again, and uh, I want to thank you for coming on, Stephen. And I I know that your mother would be right proud of you know what, what that's you've what done that's here. what I felt about these that's what I felt about these beautiful snowflakes coming down. That was my mom yeah. saying hello to me, saying you done good. Could be. Yep. And you it, know there might be a lot of well. people listening, but the call. The callers aren't going to come on there, and then if you did get one, it's going to be someone telling me to shut the hell up. <laughs> yeah, not on my station, they won't. <laughs> no. We got a kill button well, me, on here, and I can hit that thing faster than lightning. But anyway, go ahead. Well, let me know what I can do next, because uh, I kind of just, you know, checked myself off the planet here until I came to some results about this. Well, we're glad you're yeah. back. Yeah, I'm, I'm very glad. I might, you're even, back I might even get. I might even go for a walk. Not in the there snow. You go. <laughs> I don't care. I'll put, I'll put on 25 coats and three hats and two sets of gloves and a smile <laughs> on my face and march out Wait there. Wait until tomorrow. Wait until it's light out. <laughs> and my wife is in Japan right now visiting her folks. There's another yeah. whole issue is that her dad is 85 years old and never even been to a hospital ever, and he just survived two cancer surgeries. So she's over there helping them right now. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Good. I'm glad he's doing well. Glad he's doing well. So, well, thank you for reaching out to us. Well, I've got a few follow-ups. I'm going to send a copy of this autopsy to uh, Marcia Joyner so she can check it out. And like I said, Mm -hmm. I got so depressed after nothing was happening. I haven't even looked at the thing for two and a half years. I pulled it out today for the first time. I've I've made ten copies, and only four of them are out there. 
Okay. Um, we've, we've got less than 30 seconds left here. Stephen, again, thank you for coming on. Marcia, excellent show. You do a good job. Um, well, thank I want to thank everybody for tuning in this evening. And remember, all shows are brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit taking place July 29th, 30th, and 31st this year. And we'll be there, and I'm going to be talking about this. Um, thank you, and everybody. God bless Marcia, you all. Did you have anything to say quick? Um, I wanted to thank you, Marty, for giving us the opportunity and the forum to try to get this information out there. So thank you. Thank you, well, Stephen. We'll, Appreciate we'll, it. We'll, thank you, Marty. We'll keep I love running. you guys. Thank you. Give okay. me a call. You know, give me a call. You know my phone number. I got it. All Thanks, right. Stephen. Okay. <laughs> Bye, dear. Good night, everyone. Okay. Good night. Bye-bye.